Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And today I want to talk uh, about the uh, the very first arrival uh, arrivals of the Red Army in the capitals of Europe at the end of the Second World War, um, often referred to amongst the populations of Hungary, Poland, and East Germany as Zero Hour, or in German Stund Null. Um, I'm going to be looking at Anne Applebaum's book, Iron Curtain, um, and uh, if you uh, recall, I've often talked about, uh, about her um, overview history of the uh, Stalin's Gulag system. And so I, I've got a, a lot to say for Anne Applebaum and, and her writing. Um, she's really, really quite... Um, uh, det- it's the detail and the thoroughness and the um, exhaustive uh, source work uh, that she does um, really, really um, makes uh, Iron Curtain a, a, an excellent read and a, a very good kind of um, guide to the period 45 to uh, 53 or there, thereabouts. Um, so she looks in the first chapter of the book at uh, Berlin, uh, Budapest, and Warsaw. Warsaw is obviously first east and is liberated the first, but there's not really much to liberate. Um, the Nazis had raised 90% of the city to the ground uh, following the, the Warsaw Uprising. And um, she quotes Ladislaw Spielmann. Um, if you've seen the uh, film The Pianist, uh, Spielmann was uh, the Jewish-Polish uh, concert pianist who survived the Holocaust, um, and he writes in 1945, on the 16th of January 1945, uh, 11 days before the liberation of Auschwitz, um, a silence uh, such as even Warsaw, a dead city for the last three months, had not known before, fell. I could not even hear the steps of the guards outside the building. I could not understand it. The following morning... The silence was broken by a loud and resonant noise, the last sound I expected. The Red Army had arrived, 
um, and uh, their loudspeakers were broadcasting a message in Polish throughout the city saying that the, the city had been uh, liberated. Now, one of the books I looked at uh, some time ago was Kenneth Lowe's uh, Savage Continent, and it really makes the point that uh, fighting and violence did not end in 1945, but uh, a whole host of new um, ethnic rivalries and uh, the violent um, uh, repression of um, not just um, Germany, but of much of occupied Eastern Europe began under the Soviet Union. And the, the liberation that Warsaw is treated to is not dissimilar to that that uh, the Berliners uh, experience. Um, Red Army uh, soldiers are um, every bit as, as violent and predatory towards Poles as they are towards, uh, towards Germans. The only factor that makes any difference is, of course, when the Red Army reach Germany. They are bent on, on revenge and they see... Um, some kind of legitimacy to to what they are what they are doing. The twelfth of February, nineteen forty five, um, when the siege of Budapest came to an end. And if if you want to know more about the siege of Budapest, I have done a podcast on it sometime last year. Normally, when I say sometime last year, it turns out it's like two or three years ago, which is uh, about the alarming passage of time. But there you go. Um, the siege of Budapest came to an end on the 12th of February, and um, a Hungarian civil servant wrote, I got to Castle District, not a soul anywhere. I walked along Verbocci Air Street, nothing but bodies and ruins, uh, supply carts and drays. I got to Stentharum Slag Square and decided to look in at the council in case I found somebody there, deserted. Everything turned upside down and not a soul. So the world that the uh, conquerors of the Red Army inherited was one that had been comprehensively devastated by both the uh, German army and the Red Army, and in this case uh, the uh, fascist forces of the Arrow Cross and the uh, Hungarian uh, Salazi uh, regime. So the Red Army were immensely uh, aided, uh, and the Soviet uh, f- uh, regime was immensely aided in its task of colonising Eastern Europe by the fact that um, the entire uh, half of the continent had been uh, reduced to um, abject um, uh, destitution and anarchy. There re- literally, in Warsaw, and in Budapest is no government to depose. In Berlin, the situation is remarkably similar. Um, one diarist wrote um, that uh, when the Red Army finally took control of the streets, the night was far too quiet, wrote one chronicler. Um, not a civilian in sight. The Russians have the streets entirely to themselves, but under every building, people are whispering, quaking. Who could ever imagine such a world, hidden here, so frightened, right in the middle of a big city? The norms and the uh, practices of everyday life are completely overturned 
by war and by the fall of the regime. Um, and these two events happening simultaneously that not only is, as the, is the country under siege and the capital city under siege, but also the regime has effectively uh, abdicated uh, all uh, ability to rule and all responsibility uh, to rule at the same time. And the, uh, the wish of nearly all Berliners at this point is simply for one way and another for the fighting to end. And the uh, desperation for simply um, any kind of break in the hostilities means that uh, when they do end, and they end on obviously Soviet terms, there is some manner of relief. Across Germany, it should be pointed out, uh, a mass wave of suicides uh, breaks out uh, as people, uh, not simply just ardent Nazi members, but ordinary Germans who cannot envisage uh, the horrors of life under Soviet rule, take their own lives. Anne Applebaum writes, Although it is logical to begin any history of the communist takeover of Eastern Europe with the end of the war, it is, in some ways, deeply misleading. The people of the region were not faced with a blank slate in 1944 or 1945, after all, and they were not themselves starting from scratch, nor did they emerge from nowhere, with no previous experiences ready to start afresh. Instead, they climbed out of basements of their destroyed homes, or walked out of forests where they'd been living as partisans, or slipped away from the labour camp where they had been imprisoned, or if they were healthy enough, embarked on a long, complicated journeys back to their homelands. Not all of them even stopped fighting when the Germans surrendered. As they crawled out of the ruins, they saw not virgin territory, but destruction. And of course, in all these cities, the living were cheek by jowl with the dead. Across uh, Berlin, Budapest, Warsaw, and other European cities, particularly the cities of the East, uh, which had been the battlegrounds between the Red Army and the Wehrmacht, the bed, the dead remained unburied. There was uh, the the air was full and suffused with uh, the scent of uh, the uh, the decomposing bodies of neighbours, friends, and and loved ones. So the devastation of Europe, the chaos that the war had brought, the flattened and uh, destroyed cities, um, the vast vast hectareage of farmland destroyed, um, the lost uh, generations of people to, to work the land and to make society grow, the concentration camps, and most of all the Holocaust, um, were the way in which uh, inadvertently uh, the Nazis gifted Eastern Europe to Stalin. The chaos that the Nazi regime had wrought opened the door to Stalinism to march as far as Berlin. And as Anthony Beaver always uh, points out uh, in his various histories of the Second World War, that had um, initiatives such as D-Day failed, the Red Army may well have ended its march not at Berlin, but at Calais. One of the uh, interesting, uh, perhaps slightly unsurprising, given uh, the, the, the times in which these sorts of things have happened before, but one of the, the interesting features of Warsaw particularly is within a few weeks how the city starts to come to life again. 
um, that the marketplaces begin to fill, people begin to buy and sell the things that they need, um, repairs start to be done to buildings, uh, electricity begins to be switched back on, and uh, even a tram is running within the, the first few weeks of, of liberation. Um, the uh, diarist Stefan Kieślowski writes, in the ruins of the streets, there's commotion like never before. Trade buzzing, work booming, humour everywhere. The mob teeming, uh, life flows through the streets. Nobody would think that these are all victims of a massive disaster. People who have scarcely recovered from a catastrophe, or that they are living in extreme inhuman conditions. And during the Russian Civil War, um, during the period of war communism, um, and famine and and um, uh, internecine strife, when um, the policy of war communism was lifted very quickly during Lenin's new economic policy era, the um, towns of Russia and cities and marketplaces very quickly fill with small traders uh, looking to survive. Uh, commerce uh, very rapidly um, uh, returns. Um, Shandor Mirai uh, spoke of uh, Budapest, um, saying, Whatever remained of the city, uh, of society, sprang to life with such passion, fury and sheer willpower, with such strength and stamina and cunning, it seemed as if nothing had happened. Out on the boulevard there were certain stalls and gateways, selling all kinds of nice food and luxury items, clothes, shoes, everything you could imagine, not to mention the gold Napoleons, morphine and pork lard. The Jews who remained staggered from their yellow star houses, and within a week or two you could see them bargaining, surrounded as they were by the corpses of men and horses. People were quibbling over prices for warm British cloth, French perfumes, Dutch brandy and Swiss watches among the rubble. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The desire for a return to normality seems to have been uh, a key motivator 
in this uh, extraordinary explosion of, of creative energies. Um, Polish and Hungarian diarists and memoirists um, talking about this um, period um, focus on the, the urgent need for things such as a return to education and work and family life. And um, the attraction is obviously, you know, very profound. These have been things that have been uh, torn out of uh, Polish life, firstly by Hitler. There are some interesting parallels between the mindset of Hitler and Stalin when it came to countries such as um, Hungary, Poland and Czechoslovakia, these uh, buffer states that had emerged after the Treaty of Versailles uh, in order to create what the French had called the Cordon Sanitaire, partly to hem in the Soviet Union, but also, as far as the British and French were concerned, to create a democratic barrier between Germany and the Soviet Union, lest they decide to meet up and become friends. Uh, a very unpalatable thought as far as uh, Western democratic states were concerned. When Hitler came to power, he viewed uh, particularly Poland, but also Czechoslovakia, as uh, states that had no right to exist. He said that these were fictions created by the Treaty of Versailles, uh, Mongol nations uh, pieced together through political disp um, expediency. Uh, they had no right to exist, and they did not follow the kind of racial system of, of Hitler's imagining. And also, they incorporated German minorities, so these were countries that had had um, uh, which were German territory in his eyes, and simply contained um, uh, Slavic squatters who could now be flung off their land and sent, uh, you know, who knows where. Stalin looked at these states in a slightly different way, but with no uh, no more sense of legitimacy. The way Stalin viewed them were that they were a kind of a dangerous, uh, they were dangerous neighbours. The porous border between Poland and Ukraine, for example, during the Soviet famines, meant in Stalin's eyes that troublemakers, anti-Soviet troublemakers, would cross over from Poland into Ukraine and whip up discontent amongst the kulaks and thus create the conditions for uh, Stalin to have to bring about uh, violent anti-Kulak actions. Uh, of course, this is largely largely nonsense, but it is uh, true that these borders are, were highly porous. Um, Stalin looked at uh, any state along his borders with immense suspicion and saw them as being the uh, kind of the the means by which not just people but ideas could filter into the Soviet Union, and it was the ideas particularly that Stalin saw as threatening and dangerous. So one of the reasons for establishing a Soviet cordon sanitaire, um, a buffer zone, was to make sure that there were. Um, uh, that if any future war would be fought on Eastern in Eastern Europe, not on Soviet territory, but also to make sure that dangerous ideas, dangerous thoughts, and troublemakers in general didn't find, uh, didn't exist on the Soviet border. That they were um, that the the danger was pushed back to Western Europe. Whilst there were some uh, uneasy relations uh, in the West between resistance fighters in countries such as France 
and their Anglo-American uh, troops. In the East, um, the situation is in, entirely different. For the most part, in the West, uh, there was some grudging admiration of uh, partisans and resistance fighters, and some limited sense of common cause. In the East, um, liberated partisans, unless they had been officially uh, Soviet-sanctioned uh, and Comintern-sanctioned, were seen as dangerous, and there was every reason to uh, arrest or execute them, as there was um, to uh, attack the uh, retreating uh, Nazis. And in the West, whilst the uh, collaborationist governments of Western Europe, such as uh, France and Italy, and uh, to some extent uh, the Netherlands, um, shipped their Jews to um, Auschwitz uh, with um, no small amount of uh, collaboration and participation. What can be said to be true is that those states at the end of the war were all intact. They hadn't been dismantled. The governments were still there. The governments still, still functioned. They may have been occupied by the German army, but by and large... It is um, French and Italian passport clerks who are, um, or railway uh, officials, who are deciding where uh, Jews are sent. In Eastern Europe, not only have the governments been either overthrown or are, in the case of Hungary, uh, under Horthy, and then later under Salazi, uh, so uh, powerfully controlled by the... Um, uh, by the Nazi regime, that um, they have they they are almost barely non-functioning as independent entities entities themselves. In Eastern Europe, in Poland, uh, in the Baltic states, uh, there is no government. There is a kind of a, a form of uh, of uh, grassroots sort of anarchy, stateless anarchy, and on high a, a totalitarian colonizing force. And the reason uh, that the Holocaust is able to be perpetrated uh, in uh, its final form, in, uh, in the form of Auschwitz and the other camps in Poland, is based around this, is because there is essentially no, no functioning state there. Um, and therefore it is far easier to turn someone like Poland into a laboratory for genocide, trying different approaches to mass killing. As a result of this, uh, as a result of the fact that the Eastern, uh, Eastern Europe is where the Red Army and the Nazis met in battle for the most part, um, the world in which survivors uh, emerged into was radically different from those of their Western counterparts. There were, for example, some 5.5 million Polish deaths during the war, or, or thereabouts, and um, some six million, six to nine million, perhaps uh, German uh, deaths, whereas the sum total of um, Allied of British uh, military and civilian deaths adds up to three hundred and sixty thousand individuals. Um, and this isn't to downplay the uh, losses on the Western Front. Obviously, these are, those are, are huge in, in their own right. 
But the world in which um, the Red Army turned up in, the, uh, the countries that the Red Army conquered, not only had been devastated physically, but on, on a deep kind of, uh, I guess, existential, almost psychical uh, level, individuals um, were uh, coming to terms with the fact that um, you know, vast chunks of their population had simply been uh, been annihilated in the most um, horrific of, of manners. And I think what this perhaps does is make it a lot easier to um, present a uh, society with uh, an, an ultimatum um, and to uh, be able to seize power um, by uh, exploiting dislocation uh, and trauma. And of course, one must also remember uh, the unintentional diasporas of Europe, the uh, people who had been scattered through forced labour and evacuation um, throughout uh, Eastern Europe, uh, and uh, many who had been taken into Germany uh, against their, their will. So the fact that there were people who were uh, very mobile, trying to get home, who were poorly clothed, poorly fed, uh, hungry uh, and, and desperate, also prevent, presented the Soviets with a historically unprecedented uh, opportunity. Um, communism very often has manifested itself at times of acute hunger. Uh, and in the period 1945 to 48, uh, this is, is no different. Um, and it was a, a superb device for enabling people to acquiesce to Soviet rule. And the expulsion by uh, the communist regimes or the uh, regimes of uh, national unity that established themselves, which has kind of strong communist components who would later take over across Eastern Europe, of German colonists and of ethnic German populations meant that the new states of Eastern Europe would be far more uh, raci racially and ethnically homogenous than Hitler could ever have dreamt of. And this ethnic homogeneity would later serve the purposes of the uh, communists believing that uh, the, German and the, the Germans were... Uh, inherently fascist and by kicking them out it was possible to have uh, some kind of anti-fascist nation and to forge new national identities out of anti-fascism. Anti-fascism of course being a code for Soviet communism. Now I'm going to talk a lot more about uh, the conquest of Eastern Europe. There's a heck of a lot to, to say on it and I'm trying to uh, bring my bit by bit history of the Second World War up to date as well. So hopefully these things are gonna kinda kinda dovetail. So stay tuned for more on this. Um pop by our Facebook page. I'm gonna put a link here uh, underneath this um uh, the, this this podcast and uh, our Facebook group, I beg your pardon. Uh, there's uh, really, some really interesting stuff starting to happen there. So uh, swing by. There's new content on there, and um, it's great to hear people's uh, views and observations. Anyway, thanks very much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Bye bye. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.